Welcome back to the podcast, where Congresswoman Catherine Clark is our guest today to talk impeachment, politics, and her plan for curbing workplace sexual harassment. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's good to be with you, Andy. Thanks for having me. Uh, and I'm Andy Metzger, reporter for Commonwealth Magazine. Given the velocity of news in Washington, uh, I'd just like to say at the outset that this conversation is happening on Tuesday, October 8th, right around noon. So anything that happens afterwards, we can't be responsible for. Uh, Catherine Clark is the sixth highest ranking member of the Democratic leadership in the U.S. House, a former state rep and state senator with a background as a state prosecutor in Colorado and Massachusetts. Clark was elected to the House in a 2013 special election to fill the vacancy left by Senator Ed Markey. And then last year, after recruiting a number of House candidates, she was elected vice chairwoman of the House Democratic Caucus. That all puts Congresswoman Clark in an excellent position to talk about the impeachment inquiry that Speaker Pelosi announced last month. Congresswoman, what is, uh, what is your theory of the case against Donald Trump? What we have with Donald Trump's action is a clear abuse of power. We have a sitting president of the United States who called a country, a foreign government, in this case Ukraine, and asked for uh, a, a favor. I think the line we're all going to remember from the transcript of that call is, can I ask you for a favor, though? We need a favor. And that was political dirt on uh, an opponent, which is putting the national security of the American people behind his political gain. Okay. Um, so that's sort of, that's the big picture theory that it's trading a political favor for, you know, the, the might of the United States and whatever it might offer. That's the theory. What is the game plan for the House to pursue this case? And how quickly do you want to move towards a vote? So the origins of this particular uh, inquiry come from the whistleblower complaint. And we are using that complaint as our roadmap to look at what were um, what were the other conversations that happened? Why was this call put into a top secret classified um, place that these type of calls usually aren't put into? Um, what happened with the military aid for the for Ukraine? Was this something that was being used in an extortive way uh, to make sure that Ukraine opened these investigations? It is clear from some of the text messages that have already come out that Ukraine was very interested in a White House meeting for the president to show his support for this new administration and that there was a lot of back and forth about would they be willing to open investigations into the Bidens, into the 2016 um, election in order to obtain that meeting. So we're going to pursue these witnesses and the documents. And unfortunately, it seems like the Trump administration is continuing with the obstruction and the unprecedented stonewalling that we've seen from so many of the investigations that we have been trying to uh, to hold to perform our constitutional obligation to provide oversight. And so how does the House deal with that if there is an unwillingness from the administration to provide witnesses and that sort of thing? 
Well, one of the reasons we opened an impeachment inquiry is because it does give us more authority and power. And even if this administration doesn't want to recognize that Congress is a co-equal branch of government, the law does. And we will be able to um, subpoena uh, witnesses, and we will be able to have those enforced with a greater urgency and with a stronger legal backing now that we have opened an impeachment inquiry. So we're going to let the facts really judge the timing, but we understand that this threat to our national security is serious. It's urgent. We have one year to the 2020 elections, and we want to make sure that those elections are fair and free from foreign government interference. What's it been like to be a congresswoman during these unprecedented times? It is a bit surreal <laughs> at, at times. You know, I, I went to Congress uh, almost six years ago to really be a voice for families here in Massachusetts and across the country um, to look at the issues that we care about. And I think areas where Massachusetts has been a leader, like in health care, like in marriage equality, like in making sure that we have paid leave, uh, child care. Those are the interests that I went to work on. Nobody uh, goes to Congress to impeach a president. But history has, has called on us. I don't believe this president has left us many options except to open this inquiry. And so we are going to rise to our constitutional duty and our oath of office. But we're very committed in the caucus to do this in a way that is serious, um, that is somber, and is fair. I think that's what the American people are looking for, and that's our obligation to them. Um, and it seems to me, speaking of options, that there's really, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but there's really only one way out, right, which is a vote on the House floor on articles of impeachment. I mean, at this point, it would be a dramatic reversal for Speaker Pelosi to say, we're not going to have a vote. So is that what you think will wind up happening is a vote on the floor? I do think with the amount of evidence that we've already seen that we have, uh, you know, that we, it is likely that we will proceed to articles of impeachment. But um, we do investigations for a reason. And basically, we are acting as uh, the chief investigators for an indictment, which would then be presented to the jury, which is the Senate. So we have to be true to that process and really follow where the facts lead us. Um, and how important for Democrats is it politically that there's unity um, within, the, within the House when you uh, actually take this sort of vote? I mean, if members were to vote off, it seems like that would give the president and his allies uh, a real a real point to say, well, even the Democrats don't agree on that I did anything wrong. You, you know, I, I don't think our goal is unity. I think our goal is to get to the truth and to get to the facts. And as, if the facts support uh, all the indications so far are this has been a, um, a egregious abuse of power by this president. And I think that you have seen Democrats support opening this inquiry from a variety of 
districts and, you know, across sort of from our most conservative blue dog um, uh, Democrats to very liberal Democrats because they understand what's at stake. And this is really about uh, sending a clear message that no one is above the law and that we each take an oath that says we're going to work to protect the Constitution and the American people, and we have to uphold that. And so, again, we are going to be the fact finders, and we're going to we're going to follow where that leads. Um, and turning to electoral politics, you endorsed Senator Elizabeth Warren for president, uh, but earlier you mentioned that the Senate is the jury, and in the race between Senator Ed Markey and Congressman Joe Kennedy and two others, Shannon Liss Reardon and Steve Pemberton. Um, you haven't yet endorsed. That's despite the fact that in, back in 2013, you did endorse uh, Congressman, then Congressman Ed Markey for Senate. What's the, uh, what's the holdup, and, and will you get into that race? Will you, will you make an endorsement? You know, I have, uh, I think that at this point, I am unlikely uh, to endorse in this race. Uh, Senator Markey has, obviously, I hold the seat that he had in the House. Uh, he is a constituent as well as someone that I have worked very closely with. We need his leadership around climate change, and I greatly appreciate what he's done. And also, uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy is a good friend. He has been a colleague. He has been um, someone that I have turned to as a, as a mentor and uh, a trusted advisor in the House. So it is personally uh, two people that I greatly admire who I think serve the Commonwealth very, very well. And it's going to be a tough choice for voters. Um, and are you worried at all that that primary race will be a drain on resources, meaning donor dollars, as Democrats are trying to keep the House, trying to take back the Senate, and trying to win the presidency? I'm not. Um, what we have seen across the country is that people understand what's at stake in 2020. And there are going to be supporters for um, all kinds of candidates, but we have seen that Donors are um, they're supporting with their time, with their money, and they understand that they can do two things at once. They can support a Senate candidate of their choice and make sure that we are electing good local and state leadership, that we are looking at other Senate races around the country and, of course, the race for the presidency. Um, and sticking with Massachusetts, uh, President Trump or the Trump administration has uh, put the pause button on a big economic development, energy, green jobs program, that being Vineyard Wind. Now, Governor Baker has tried to lobby to, to keep things moving on that. Is there a role for Congress to play um, on that as the feds review offshore wind in general? Well, we have certainly shared with the administration our concern at this last minute, rather vaguely reasoned uh, halt on this project. We have an opportunity in Massachusetts, as we lead in so many other areas, to really be a leader in wind and renewable energy. And this seems to me to be a play by the administration to the hands of big oil and to say they don't want to see us um, really breaking ground and moving forward on 
this project, which, as you said, not only will create a clean source of energy, but it's going to create a lot of great jobs. And those jobs are, you know, ones that that we need that are going to be part of a, a green job revolution. But this administration has been very hostile, whether it's taking us out of the Paris Accord. Uh, you know, you have a problem when you even have objections from Shell and Exxon to changes in methane regulations they recently made. Um, they are, it is almost like a cartoon villain, the way they are rolling back regulations and putting our planet, our clean air and water in jeopardy. On that, it seems big oil is transitioning into uh, green energy. So are they really opposed to offshore wind development? Well, they appear to be. Uh, I think that the reasoning why they have slowed this project uh, really doesn't pass muster. Uh, It just was too vague, and we are going to continue to push for answers and look for the kind of investments we need. One of the things that uh, we ran on as Democrats in 2018 in the midterms was infrastructure. And one of the key pieces of that is infrastructure and renewable energy and making sure we update our electrical grids, that we're investing and researching in battery storage. These are going to be all critical pieces of combating climate change and making sure that we are building resiliency here in the Bay State. And we need this administration to be a partner. And what we found is they're just deniers. And they're not looking at the science. They're not looking at the needs of our communities. And we are going to continue to press them for answers. Okay. Well, turning to an issue that was not part of uh, the 2018 midterms much, but now has been raised around Massachusetts and certainly in Pennsylvania as a potential solution for people who are dying from uh, opioid overdoses. Uh, Some people in Massachusetts have suggested um, establishing so-called supervised injection sites or supervised drug use sites. Now, U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling has said he would prosecute, use all of his powers to prevent that sort of thing from happening. Do you support that sort of approach? And is there a role for Congress to clarify the law on on what's legal or not in that area? I, I do support it because I... I Every time I come home from Washington, D.C., I meet another family that has lost a son or a daughter or a a close friend to this epidemic. And we have to take a comprehensive approach. And that's what I've been working on in Congress. Um, You know, I've found some interesting partners from across the aisle because the opioid epidemic doesn't care if you live in a red state or a blue state. Uh, Just this year, coming from discussions here in Massachusetts about the lack of treatment, the, the real struggle that treatment providers are having in recruiting and retaining doctors and recovery coaches and people to help, um, help people into recovery and help win their lives back from, this, uh, from the grip of the opioid epidemic. And so we came up with Hal Rogers from Kentucky, a Republican, with a program that's going to allow anyone who's working 
as a is a provider of recovery services and treatment programs here in Massachusetts and across the country with full repayment of their student loans up to 250,000. Um, that's the seeing problems here in Massachusetts and being able to take them to the table in Congress to come up with national solutions. Um, you know, these sites in particular, if it is saving some lives, it is if it is allowing us to have the intervention to stop this cycle um, before a person does lose their life to an overdose, that's a piece of this puzzle that we have to be open to and figure out. And Andrew Lelling does say that they are illegal under federal law. Is he right about that? And should the federal law be changed to legalize them? I don't know exactly what he is citing as illegal under federal law, but we can certainly look into um, his concerns if he feels this is a simple task for Congress to help fix. Um, We're more than glad to, to work with him and see if we can come up with a solution that can help save lives. Okay. And as we speak right now, down the street uh, at the State House, the transportation revenue debate is kicking off in one form or another. You were uh, in the Senate, in the Massachusetts Senate, for the last debate in 2013. In fact, sponsored an amendment to cap the amount um, by which MBTA fares could be uh, raised every few years. Um But since then, there's been this other proposal by Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu, where she says, let's just abolish fares on the MBTA altogether. What do you think about that idea? What I think is the federal government needs to come in and partner with states. Obviously, we all have uh, issues with the MBTA. And I hear about it a lot from constituents at home. And there are things that we can do on the state level and that can always be done better. But we also need to be a partner on the federal level and make the kind of investments in public infrastructure, in our public transportation that can help and work with states and cities and make sure that we are there to support There was a lot of talk from this president about helping with the infrastructure bill, but we've seen very little action. And as we move forward, uh, we have bills that are just piling up by the dozens at the Senate door with no action. And I certainly hope that will not be the fate of an infrastructure package, but we are putting one together. And I think that the T is an excellent example of where the federal dollars can really help Uh, move this issue forward and relieve the commuters themselves from uh, from being the ones who need to to absorb the cost of this project through the fares. So should the fares be lower? Well, I always think the fares should be lower, but you know there is you know we have to look at a complex. It's a complex problem, but I think that part of what's missing here is a strong federal partner in it. Okay. And on another transportation issue where there's some federal or at least national role to play, that being the registries of motor vehicles, sometimes called Department of Motor Vehicles around the country, uh, the the tragic crash in New Hampshire uh, this past summer that killed seven motorcyclists really exposed a lot of deficiencies in um, information being exchanged between the states 
there's a national driver registry, but that doesn't tell tell states when um, something's happened in another jurisdiction with one of their drivers. Uh, more recently, Congressman Seth Moulton has proposed putting some federal dollars behind that sort of thing, information exchange. In fact, uh, Governor Baker supports that sort of thing as well. Do you do you like that idea? I do. I, I think that it is one that can help improve public safety by making sure that we are getting good information from other states. And this certainly arised in just the, the horrific accident in New Hampshire, which um, was just a, a devastating loss of life and maybe could have been prevented if this data and information had been shared and acted on in a more efficient way. But we've seen this in other areas as well, like with criminal background information. Uh, when I worked here in the state for the Office of Child Care Services, making sure that people who were working with children, with vulnerable young adults, um, were were suited for the job and did not have a criminal background that might um, make them a threat or a danger to at-risk children. Um, but there are problems with the system of sharing that information. So I think there is a role for Congress and the federal government to be a conduit and to help get the best data we can to improve public safety. Um, and you have a proposal to deal with a very different um, problem, but a major problem nonetheless called the Be Heard Act. And it's supposed to decrease, diminish the amount of workplace sexual harassment that happens around the country. If this were to become law, how would it change things for someone who feels vulnerable at work and doesn't know where to turn? Yeah, we're here at the two-year anniversary of, of the Me Too movement of brave survivors who've come forward and told their stories. And with uh, Senator Patty Murray, we have worked to put together a comprehensive bill that can really help everyone who goes to work to have a respectful environment that is backed up by federal law. Um, it will do things like extend the statute of limitations because we've heard from so many survivors that they couldn't make their claim in time because they were choosing between feeding their families or risking speaking out about what was happening to them at work. And we want to make sure that a statute of limitations doesn't cut off um, their legal rights and the right to bring this case forward. It would do away with tipped minimum wage, which we see used as a tool of exploitation. Um, there are many things that we do in this bill to also support small businesses that may not have very large HR departments, that may need resources and access to training materials to make sure that their employees are treated with respect. But, you know, just just a few weeks ago, we had a rally on this bill in front of the Capitol over by Union Station, and I got to talk to Barbara Johnson, who's been a leader in the Fight for 15, and she told me about being grabbed by her boss and just how humiliating it was. And the same thing happened to me when I was a college student working in a restaurant, but the difference was I didn't have a family to support. 
I had a safety net. I was going to be heading back to school. And we have to make sure that everybody, whether you're in a restaurant kitchen or on a Hollywood set, has the rights, has the backing of federal law to make sure that they can enforce a dignified and respectful workplace. I'm uh, sorry to hear that happen to you. Um, was was the person who grabbed you, were they fired or did they? I never spoke a word uh-huh. about it. Uh-huh. It was a coworker and I just, it never occurred to me with his position at that restaurant that anybody would take it seriously. And I think like so many victims, women don't want to make waves. They want to get their job done. And they just take in the humiliation um, on themselves. And that is the point of this bill, that we see you, we want to be a voice for you, and we want you to be heard. Um, Now, one other aspect of this bill is it would ban pre-employment non-disclosure agreements. And that's been a sort of controversial issue in the legislature where the Senate has banned NDAs in any form from that banned the Senate from entering into them. But the House has sort of uh, uh, had a more nuanced approach. And they say that the House says that uh, NDAs can be used to the benefit of survivors of sexual harassment. Um, Now, a couple of your colleagues, Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley and Congresswoman uh, Lori Trahan, have supported the effort to ban NDAs in the House. Do you have any position on that? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a key piece of of this bill and legislation. And what we are seeing in some of the cases that come out of Massachusetts are even women who've been raped at work. But because they signed a non-disclosure agreement, because they already agreed to take anything that might arise at the workplace, Uh, to arbitration in another state, Uh, she had already signed her rights away, even though she experienced this very violent crime at work. Our our legislation is proposing to end that practice. Um, We have also recently in the House of Representatives passed a separate package that just deals with the NDAs. So, you know, we look forward to, to seeing what Massachusetts does how they work out their proposals here, but we are very committed that this is really a practice that can get in the way from uh, survivors of abuse at work getting their day in court and their day of justice. Now, I know you have places to be, but maybe right before you go, uh, I understand you're probably doing some more recruiting for candidates around the country, and is there just anyone who you might want to mention people should pay attention to someone running for Congress who isn't running for re-election but trying to take a seat? Yeah, well, we're, we're very excited. Um, we do have candidates. We're doing a lot of work in Texas. And uh, looking down there, we've seen a lot of retirements from Republican members of Congress. We're calling it Texas. And uh, we're uh, one candidate I'd love to mention is Gina Ortiz Jones. Um, she is running in San Antonio area, uh, and this was going to be a rematch uh, against Will Hurd, but he has announced his retirement, and we're very excited about the prospects of flipping that seat. So check her out. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Congresswoman, for coming in and, and talking to me about all this stuff. Thank you so much, Andy. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too.